If you would turn with me in the Psalms to Psalm 28 this morning, Psalm 28. As you turn there, I want to remind you that most of you transported several hundred pounds to church this morning. Now, this is not a commentary on the weight of an average American, but I'm just uh, observing the fact that you are here, and you probably, many of you, came with someone else. Some of you didn't. You came alone. But most of you, if not all of you, probably either drove a car or rode in a car this morning, and I bet your car weighs quite a bit, too. In fact, I wager that you didn't carry everything with you this morning. You didn't carry your car and your Bible and all of the things that you brought, including yourself, with you. If you did that, especially for those of you that came 25 miles or more, I don't think you would be here. You see, the strength that you needed to provide for you to be here this morning was provided by the design of your vehicle, the strength to get here, in that sense, was not really your own. And so it is with believers. Our strength is not our own. Our strength comes from another. Follow along as I read from Psalm 28. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people, He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. This is the word of the Lord, inspired by the Holy Spirit, by the hand of his servant David. Let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, guide us, guide our thoughts, guide our beings, guide the meditations of our heart, that they might be pleasing in your sight. Lord, if words are spoken here that are not consistent with your own, take them away that they may not be heard from again. But if so, Lord, move us by your spirit to understand your word, to know it, and to be strengthened by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have heard these refrains, have you not? Be the best version of yourself. Be holy. Be evangelistic. Be all that you can be. These are all the dreaded bees, aren't they? Be this, be that. Be wonderful. Be amazing. Be more than you can possibly imagine. 
And then you come to scripture when Isaiah presented himself before a holy God, he realized, I am not holy. When pastors come by their everyday lives and they realize that they failed another opportunity to share the gospel with somebody, we understand, I'm not very evangelistic, am I? Then we realize we're not patient, we're not kind. We're not loving. We're not all of those things that we're told to be. Our parents tell us to be. Our teachers tell us to be. Our coaches tell us to be. Our bosses tell us to be this and that and the other thing. And the weight of being all of those things is overbearing. What am I? If I'm honest, I'm a mess. My body's wearing out. I get impatient with people. I get stressed out. And I realize if it's all about me being something, and if the weight of the world or the weight of my family or the weight of the church is on my shoulders, we are all going to fall down. At some point, our strength will give out, our self reliance will fail. And physically, mentally, emotionally, everyly, our strength is not enough. And so David, in all his might, in all his glory as a king, in all his talent as a poet, in all his ability to worship God with great might and power, even dancing before the Lord with all his might as the ark goes to the presence of the tabernacle, even despite all the things we see about David, that he is a man after God's own heart, David says this, the Lord is our rock. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our strength. The first words, to you. How so very important. This is the heart of David The heart of David is not upon himself. Now we know it did get upon himself at times in his sin with Bathsheba and his sin and complicity to murder and his sin of counting the people when he was relying upon his own power and ways. But this psalm expresses the heart of David that is repentant and that is focused by faith on the Lord as it is inspired by the Spirit to write these words to you, not me, not a leader, not some other person or way, to you, O Lord, I call. You see, when he says that the Lord is my rock, what he's saying is, is the Lord is his strength, the Lord is his protection, the Lord is his ability to be there, to stand, and to stand against his enemies. And so therefore, it is a reminder that with David, A man of faith, if we are of faith, we will call upon the Lord. That's not always easy. You know, I think of the TV show not too long ago, where if you got stuck because you didn't know a trivia question, you could pick up the phone and call somebody, call a friend. How many of them would say, well, I'm going to call upon God for this question? That sounds silly. But we as believers, 
When we want to call on someone for an answer to the problems we have in life, where do we turn? So often we turn to everything else except the Lord. He says, to you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. You see, when we call upon him, in one way, we're asking him to speak. We're asking him not to be silent. Now, if you are in our tradition, perhaps you understand the works of the late Francis Schaeffer, where it said, God is not silent, God is there. And sometimes when people say we want God to speak, we're expecting an audible word from God. And yet, I don't think too many of us have heard that. But we still ask him to speak. Now in David's day, he was asking God to speak, sometimes audibly, sometimes inspiring him to write Holy Scripture, sometimes speaking through the prophets. But the New Testament tells us that in these later days, In the days of the church, he is speaking to us through his son, Jesus Christ. When we ask the Lord to speak and not to be deaf to us or silent to us, what do we do? How do we call upon the Lord? Yes, we pray to him, but we also seek him in his word. This is how he's speaking to us, through the living and active word, able to discern the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. How many times have you picked up the Bible for your daily Bible reading? Perhaps you have a reading like I do where you read through the Bible in a year and you pick up your Bible and you maybe even have forgotten where you were in the place and you pick it up and you read it and you find something that God is speaking to you that you did not expect. You see, an encounter with the Holy Scriptures is an encounter with a God who speaks to his people. He is speaking to us through his word. He is also speaking to us through his people as they gather together for worship and to study his word and to encourage one another. He is speaking to us in the everyday circumstances of our lives as his Holy Spirit convicts us and challenges us and, when necessary, reminds us of his word. One of the great truths of the work of the Holy Spirit is he teaches us God's word and he reminds us of God's word at the appropriate times. But sometimes still, we read our Bible, we pray, and we think, we act as if God has forgotten us. And so verse 2 says, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. The words pleas for mercy sometimes might be called supplications. Those activities that recognize God is a gracious God and may be gracious to his people. But notice it doesn't say plea singular. It says plural. In other words, we continuously plead for mercy. This is not a static thing where we say, okay, God, I'm having some problem. I'm asking you to help. And then I never say anything again. This is in relationship with him. We come to his throne of grace again and again and again and day after day, hour after hour. We understand that even if he does not solve the specific problem, we want him to solve at that moment when we pray, yet he is a God who loves his children, and he delights to give them good gifts, and we plead for mercy. And of course, after all, 
What he's saying here, the David is, is he's saying, if you're silent, I'll be just like those who are dead. That is those who go down to the pit, those who go to this place where people don't return. He says, I won't have anything. I won't understand anything. I won't hear anything. But Lord, I cry to you for help when I lift my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. What does it mean by lifting your hands to the most holy sanctuary? It means this. This is looking at the place where the presence of God symbolically dwelled in the nation of Israel. This was the holy of holies. The place where the mercy seat was on the ark. The covering of the ark with the cherubs and their wings almost touching each other. And it was there where the presence of God would be amongst his people. And symbolically, the Lord came down in all his glory and might, both when they built the tabernacle and began their presence or their worship there, and when they built the temple and began their worship there. And his glory filled it to such a degree that the people, the Levites and the others, could not carry out their duties. And so when David says, I'm lifting up my hands to the most holy sanctuary, he's in essence saying this, I seek you, Lord. We seek him. We don't just seek the trappings of worship, a religion, or some ethereal God who might be out there. We seek the Lord God who speaks to us through his word and who has acted on behalf of his people time and time again from the pages of scripture through the annals of the history of the church even to the present day. You know, there are countless individuals in the world just waiting for God to speak, waiting for a sign, waiting for a miraculous event. If God would just do this, then I would believe in him. They're waiting for an audible word. If God would just speak, after all, we see that he spoke in those times. We're waiting often for the God we design who will do what we expect him to do. And so we're not looking necessarily for the God of the scriptures and the one God of the universe. We're looking for our God. But David recognizes David does speak, or God does speak, but he will speak in his timing, in his purpose, on behalf of his people. And God is already speaking through his word and spirit. And of course, one of the ways in which he speaks is to tell us that the Lord is our judge. Verse 3, this is the cry of David as he's perhaps in a very difficult place calling for urgent rescue from danger. He says, do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil. Now, why would David do this? He said throughout this section of the Psalms, he's been talking about how in certain circumstances he has been innocent while others have maligned him and slandered him. Some commentators think that this particular psalm is right in line with these, that David is in a time of of slander and gossip and those who would seek to bring him down in those ways. But David recognizes his own heart. He recognizes that by all right, he would be dragged off with the wicked, wouldn't he? In fact, David would say, In his sin with Bathsheba, against you, you only have I sinned. He recognizes his 
wickedness. And so he's asking God not to drag him off with the wicked. He's asked for him for mercy. And then he reminds us of why we're asking him to spare us from judgment. First of all, he describes those who deserve judgment, who speak, who, who are the wicked and are the workers of evil. And you see, it, it, is, it is two things here. First of all, these are really guilty people. The world will tell us right now in our American culture, guilty feelings are bad feelings. They're false feelings. You have nothing to feel guilty about. Do what you want to do. Be what you want to be. Don't feel guilty about it. But that is directly against the word of God. We're sinners, and because we're sinners, that sin gives us real guilt, and you need to have those guilt feelings. Because if you don't, that means your conscience has been seared to such a degree that when you are sinning, you, don't, you won't realize it. And yet, you'll still be guilty before a holy God. He says here, they are wicked. They are the guilty But secondly, he says this, they are those practicing evil. That's the word here, they're committing or practicing evil. That's what it means by being workers of evil here. In other words, their life is geared around doing those things which displease God, either doing things that he said not to do or not doing the things that he told us to do. That's what sin is. And when David says, I want you to spare me from the judgment of the wicked, he's describing what the wicked are. And then he says in the last half of verse 3, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. He's asking God to separate us from hypocrites. Separate him from hypocrites. We ask the same thing. Here are what hypocrites are. They speak peace with their friends. In other words, they're basically saying, I'm okay. You're okay. We're all in this together. And they're all looking at peaceful solutions to things. And they're all ignoring all of their sin and all of their discontent and all the ways in which they are at battle with God and with his people. And they're saying peace. In other words, they are actually claiming to be believers. But instead, their hearts have evil. What about you? Can you, like David, call out to God and say, I want you to spare me from judgment and separate me from hypocrites because I'm not like that. says, verse 5, because they do not regard the works of the Lord. Verse 4, he says, give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Can we ask that of God? Can we say, God, give the wicked people their just desserts? Well, Jesus does have something to say about this before you judge others. Get the log out of your own eye before you look at the speck of your brother's eye. He also tells us to love our enemies. And yet we understand that justice, judgment of the wicked, is something that will glorify God. We ask him to serve judgment on evil. Even on the evil. Now of course we want them to be reformed. 
That is, we want them to come to Christ, confess their sins, and receive grace and mercy. But we also understand that judgment glorifies God. It's a reward for the work of their hands. What do our hands do? Our hands do what our heart tells us to do. Our hands do, even sometimes, in the good things that we do, we do it for the wrong motivations. Even for some of those who are the greatest philanthropists in the world, giving of all of their ability to give from their resources and doing wonderful things, if they're doing it for their own glory, or they're doing it for their reputation, or they're doing it for any other reason but to glorify God, the works of their hands deserves judgment. It's a reprisal then for their lack of consideration for the work of the Lord's hands. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. You know, the work here, both in verse 4, the work of their hands, and in verse 5, the work of his hands, it is an interesting word Because it means doings. The the doing or the working out or the product of what has taken place. What what does that look like? Well, you know, we live by the beach, don't we? You go down just the road a a few blocks here, you're going to be right at the beach. You all probably know that. And every summer, building sandcastles is the way of the young tourist. Is that not true? How many of you have built a sandcastle in your life? If you haven't, you've missed out. I hope you have. If you haven't, then go over this day, this afternoon, in your time of rest and go build a sandcastle. It's fun. Everybody likes it, except those, perhaps, that really just don't like sand at all. Now, there are folks who can build spectacular sandcastles. In fact, there are some places or some events in which there are trophies given out or monetary awards for the the most wonderful sandcastle. And sometimes I think, how in the world could they build the things that they do? You know, if you're like me, mine fall apart and they don't look so great. But we wouldn't dare use those beautiful sandcastles, some of them spectacular, even a story high, We wouldn't use those for the foundation of our homes, would we? Those are the works of our hands. In the eyes of the Lord, the things that we build without his power or his strength are like those sandcastles. Sometimes they have beauty in the eye of the beholder. But when the Lord looks at it, he can see all the flaws. And he tells us, your righteousness is like filthy rags. And as he looks at our sandcastles and we're so proud of them and we look at their beauty and the glory, he can see all the blemishes and all the things that show its unworthiness. The work of our hands is nothing but the work of his hands. Now that's something. Jesus also told us a parable about the wise man who built his house upon a rock and the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. If our house is built upon that sand and our faith is built upon the work of our hands, it will fall. But if our house is built, our faith is built on the Lord, it will stand. Why? Because the Lord is our strength. 
Verse 6 begins a section of praise. It's really the opposite of chapter 27. Chapter 27 began with praise and confidence in God and then fell into the plea to God for help in times of trouble. 28 is just the opposite. It begins with crying out to God for help in the times of trouble. But now here at the end, it relies upon the strength and confidence we have in God. You see, we praise him for his answers. Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. This is David. He had called out to God at the beginning of this psalm, please give me mercy. Now by this point, he says God hears that. Now whether he delivered him at that particular moment, in that particular time, whenever this psalm took place, we don't have one of these titles that tell us when it happened, so we don't know the circumstances. I don't know. But he is confident that God hears him and God answers his prayer. Why is that? Because he recognized that when God gives his answers, God is our strength and shield. God is my strength and shield. The Lord, again, the capital L-O-R-D, the covenant God who loves his people and has committed to them because he has given promises to them, In the time of David, in the time of Abraham, in the time of Moses, in the time of Jeremiah, in the New Covenant, all those places, the Lord is the one who constantly is the strength and protector of his people. He is our strength and shield. And then a a reminder here. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. He is not only our strength and shield, he is the object of our faith. Sometimes I think we believe that the object of our faith is our faith. We just have this circular reasoning that says, my faith will get me through. I've been around long enough, and I've gone through enough trials and tribulations to know that my faith is not enough. It's not. My faith, that is, the power of me to believe upon the truth of Scripture, the power of myself to believe upon the truths of the Lord, are not enough. My faith is not in my faith. My faith is in the Lord. The Lord is my strength and shield. In him my heart trusts. I don't trust in my faith. I trust in the Lord. And sometimes when we get all of this together, everybody will tell us. There will be all kinds of people that say, oh, yeah, I've got faith. And they might even say, my faith will get me through. And yes, in a sense, that's true. If that faith is in the Lord, if that faith is in your ability to maintain your faith and your ability to be strong enough to get you through, it's not going to happen. The Lord is the object of our faith. He is the, also the object of our praise. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. Sometimes I think we give thanks to ourselves. Look at how much faith I've got. Look at how wonderful I am. Look at how I got through this time. I just was able to do it. In our statistically driven, pull crazy 21st century, sometimes what the church does is they look for just the right programs, just the right atmosphere, just the right people. We analyze polls, we tend, uh, we, we analyze trends and programs, and if we think we're holy enough, fun enough, relevant enough, etc., you've heard those words, the church will be blessed and the people will come. 
That's when we say our faith is in us. Our strength is us. That's our strength. The problem is when Jesus met with Nicodemus in John 3, when Nicodemus as a Pharisee was thinking about how he knew God's word, how he was trying to be a good person as he was seeking to be an example for all of Israel and a teacher to the people, Jesus said to him, you must be born again. In other words, it's not what you've done, Nicodemus. It's what God can do through his spirit for you. Your strength is not your ability. Your strength is not your knowledge. Your strength is not your righteousness. Your strength is the Lord, the Lord's righteousness, that is Jesus Christ, the Lord's wisdom, that is Jesus Christ, and the Lord's ability to save his people. And so David, in recognition of this, understanding that he is not his own strength for salvation, he relies upon the Lord, he even says this very wise and prophetic thing, the Lord is the strength of his people. It actually is literally the Lord is their strength. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Now, David could have been writing about himself when he said the anointed. He was the anointed leader of God's people. The word here is, he is the mountain stronghold of salvation for his anointed. And I think here, it's a reminder of the relationship the father has with the son as well. Who is the anointed after all but Jesus Christ? And who does Jesus turn to in times of trouble with drops of blood coming down as sweat from his body in the garden? Who does he turn to when all the world is going to renounce him? It is to his father in heaven. You see, when we understand the Lord is our strength, we pray for blessings on the church. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. It's not all about us, is it? Yes, there is a place to call out for ourselves. Sometimes we tend to think we're more spiritual. I do this too. We tend to think we're more spiritual if we just wait to pray for our personal requests until the end of the prayer. Or we just just pray for everybody else when we come to prayer meeting and we say, okay, I, I don't need to have prayer for myself. No, there is a place to pray for ourselves. There is a place. David, throughout this psalm, verses 1 through 8 are all about, or 1 through 7 in particular, are all about his relationship with God and him crying out to God for help. But also we recognize there is a turn from looking just at yourself to looking to all God's people. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. You see, we pray for blessings on the church and we pray for him to shepherd the church. That's what the word here is. Be their shepherd. Pasture them. Give them what they need. Carry them. They can't do it on their own. David is recognizing David, of all people, he's the king. 
He's the guy who's supposed to be the judge for the people, the Supreme Court of the land. He's the guy who is supposed to be the military leader and the defender of the faith, the defender of the people. He is the guy who is supposed to be the strong man among them. And yet he recognizes his strength can't do it. He needs God. And so he calls out to God in his love for the church. He calls out to them or to, to God for the, on behalf of the church. And he says, you be their shepherd. Why? Because he can't do it. Verse 7 says, the Lord is my strength. As believers, that's one of the first things we come to realize. My strength is not in me. My strength is in him. When we say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, sometimes I think we say, well, because I'm a believer, I can just do whatever I can by my own power. But what it means is I can do nothing apart from Christ. He is my strength. I can get through difficult times. Why? Not because I can just ram my way through it, but because the Lord can strengthen me to get through those times. So the believer first understands the Lord is my strength, but then the believer also understands what verse 8 says. The Lord is their strength. In other words, I can't save somebody. I can't be the person who gives them the faith great enough to persevere. I can't be the one who has just the right word at just the right times in order to save others. And I have to tell you, as pastors, sometimes we might think that way. Because people come to us with all kinds of things and all kinds of problems, and that's good and that's healthy. But if the pastor begins to believe that he has the words to say and he has the ability to save them, then he begins to have what we call the savior complex. You see, this, the pastor's job is not to save the people. The pastor's job is to get out of the way so God can save the people. So here it is, the whole idea here is we come to one another for help as we point each other to the word of God so that by the spirit and the word, God will strengthen us in times of trouble. God will save us from times of danger. And God then will change us and transform us to be the people he desires for us to be. You see, without the strength of the church, without the true strength of the Lord, the weight of the world is too great a burden. Your knees will buckle and your back will fail. We trust in the Lord. We trust in his anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we trust in him to get through these times. We trust in him to save us from our sins. And we trust in him because he is our rock, our salvation, our shield, and our strength. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are the God who is there and you are not silent, as Francis Schaeffer said. We thank you, Lord, that you are our strength and our shield, that David said, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that although sometimes we will fail and sometimes we will forget, yet you will not, because you are a rock. You are our protection. You are our guide. 
We thank you for the blood of Jesus, which cleanses us from sins. And we thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit, who can convict us, who can cause us to remember your word and teach it to us. And Lord, who is with us, and you will not forsake us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.